Um, you're able to enjoy the, the corrals that we're playing. Does anybody, I, I will be so impressed if someone can do this. Does anyone recognize or know what composer that was that was playing? Anybody? I, I heard some stuff. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. So, let me uh, tell you about a, a young boy uh, who, um, he was actually born 150 years after Luther's Re- Reformation uh, got underway. And he was actually born in a town that was just a little bit below the Wartburg Castle, uh, where Luther was holed up doing his writing um, at the start of the Reformation. And so um, he, he actually grew up within a Lutheran church. It, it was a, a strong Lutheran church. His family, they were musicians. So he, uh, his parents actually died, so he lived with his brother who was an organist um, within their Lutheran church. And uh, w- one of the things that happened is as he grew up being in and around the music, he became, you know, he had a great love for music and was very accomplished. And actually, even as a young boy, one of the things he would do is his brother would keep the organ music locked up behind a key in the house because it was too valuable uh, to have it left out. And he wasn't allowed to use it and play it. So he would actually sneak down at night when everyone was asleep, get his arm inside the cabinet, pull out the sheets, the, the sheet music, copy it, put it back so that he would then have some music he would go, go and play. Um, yeah, so the, uh, um, he grew up and um, just grew in his talent both of playing as well as composing music. And uh, there was actually even one organ contest, which I think we could maybe talk with Russ about getting an organ contest going on in our church or something, but their church had a, an organ competition and um, one of the renowned organists of the area in Germany where they lived, um, he was the, the main attraction who was going to be coming and being a part of this competition. Well, when the, the day of the competition showed up, uh, this main organist he was nowhere to be seen, and later um, said that he didn't want to lose to this young boy. <laughs> so, but uh, he, one of the things that he always did, he had several different jobs over the course of his life, but it, it always was in and around music. There were a couple different churches that he was the music director, or if you wanted to use uh, today's term, the, the worship pastor or the music pastor. Um, but... Um, more than being a composer or a musician, this man was a theologian. Um, what was most important to him was his faith, his theology. And so in the 1700s, he had a 70-volume theological library in his house, which is, oh my gosh, my kids have, I think, 170 kids' books, you know, you, you know, I mean, just, just a totally different world, though, where books, you know, this, this was a couple hundred years after the Gutenberg Press, but books still were not filling up people's bookshelves. Um, 
This man spent his resources to gather Bibles. He had a, one of Luther's German Bibles, but had theological uh, texts that he kept. And um, one of the churches he actually worked at, um, he got fired from. So I wish Kyle could hear this. <laughs> so this is what this brother did every week. So he was the music director at this church every week in preparation for the sermon, the, the, the service, he would go and compose the music pieces to be used and sung by the chorale to go in line with the message that was going to be spoken. And so, you know, Kyle might put together four or five or six songs. Well, well this brother would go and write five or six or seven pieces each week uh, to go along with the, the lesson that is being taught. And there was uh, this church that he was at at one point they were complaining, saying that the music he was writing was almost sinful because it was too ornate and too majestic, and we needed to be more simple and basic. And his response, let me read this to it. He couldn't believe th this criticism. His, his response was, my main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Some people do this with music that is simple, and I haven't chosen to use a simple style, but my music comes from my heart as a humble offering to God. This honors God no matter what the musical style I use. And this is why, at this point, anybody know who we're talking about? So this is why Johann Sebastian Bach, he would sit down and at the beginning of every piece that he would write, he would at the top of the paper write J.J. Then he would compose his music, and at the very, um, very bottom, at the bottom of the paper, he would always end it with S.D.G. So he would start with J.J., which is Latin. It's Jesu Jua, if I understand that right, which means Jesus help. As he's writing, he's saying, Jesus, help me write what I do. This is my job. Jesus, help me do this job. And then at the end, when he is done, the piece is completed, SDG. And who knows what that would stand for? Yeah, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory in what I do. Um, Bach, I didn't know Bach at all. I, I heard the name. He's my favorite musician right now. <laughs> so he would say, Jesus, you have called me to this work. I cannot do this without your help. Help me. And when he's done, it's God to you alone be glory. To you alone be glory. And Bach understood, and this is right at the top of your handout, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Bach understood this. This is, what he was, this is what he was doing. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. 
to God alone be glory. And today I'm actually doing something. This is um, our last lesson in the five solas of biblical Christianity. Um, again, I think, I think most of us have been here, but sola simply being Latin for alone. So what are these five biblical truths that were marks of the Reformation and are today even marks of biblical Christianity? And so we're looking at the fifth one, which is to the glory of God alone. And one of the things that we're actually going to be doing with this lesson, I've never done this before, we're going to be starting with the application. Where we are going to go is for us to do exactly what Bach did. In all that we do, it doesn't matter what we do in life, what our vocation is, where we are in life, may all that we do be to the glory of God alone. And as we, as we discuss and as I talk about uh, this lesson today, I want you to keep that as the end point that we are working to. I want us to remember that the goal at the end of the lesson is for us to be able to want to go out and say, in all that I do, may it be to the glory of God. Jesus help me. <laughs> Jesus help me. Soli Deo Gloria. So let's pray and we're going to jump into our last lesson. Our God, our God and Father, we pray that you would be glorified by our thoughts and our meditations and even what we read and think of in this lesson. May you be glorified in our lives here today. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. So, the goal for today, the goal of today's lesson, and this is also written on there, is we want to be able to answer this question, how can I better do all the things that I do for the glory of God? How can I do it better? And what we're going to look at, the way we're going to accomplish this is, is looking really at four biblical truths, and each of these biblical truths should spur us on to live for God's glory alone. And so what these are, it's, and this is, this is neat too. Uh, we'll find this in Ephesians 1. But we're going to see the first one, where the first point where it says, God's glory is worthy of praise. Think through this. God's glory is worthy of praise. And we're going to look at Ephesians 1 and see that this is true. But we're also going to see God's glory identifies him, identifies God. God's glory is revealed to us. And fourthly, that God's glory, though, is independent of us. It's not dependent upon us. So when I say Ephesians 1, what is it that comes to your mind? Election. Yeah. You might think of blessings. You might think blessings in Christ. Um, usually, in, in verse 3, you know, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right? And, and, and then he could, goes all the way up through verse 14 talking about these blessings. I want to show us something, though, um, that, that we find in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And this, this is going to be answering the question, why is it that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Why has he blessed us? And so go ahead and open up to Ephesians 1. We're going to start in verse 3, and I'm going to read through uh, this passage up through verse 14 and look for what Ephesians 1 tells us as to why God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 11 and 12, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13 and 14, to the praise of of his glory. So I want to point in verse 6 where, where in the ESV it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, literally, and, and if you have the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible, um, it would be to the praise of his glory, uh, uh, to the praise of his glory and grace. So praise. This is a word we use regularly all the time. It's something that's, that's commonly used, but if you th stop and think about it, what does it mean to praise? And very simply, all praising is, is it's an expression of approval or commendation. And so when we praise God, and this is normally the context that we normally think of praising, that we give praise to God... Well, we know that he is great and he's wonderful and that's why we praise him. But in this situation, it's not God in this passage. It's not God who is the source or, or, or who is the object of our praise, but it is his grace. It is, and not just his grace, 
But in verse 6, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then you have at the end of this passage that we were reading that it's to the praise of his glory. And what we actually find is in Ephesians 1, what we are praising or giving our approval and the commendation, lifting up and saying, this is good and right, the object of our praise is the glory of God. Normally, our thought process might be the glory is what emanates or the light that shines out off of something. Oh, wow, look at, look at the light that's shining, you know, the glory of the stars. Or, uh, and, and we think of glory as being something that just emanates from someone or something. But in this situation, we actually have the glory of God's grace, not even the glory of God, but the glory of God's grace itself is worthy of our praise. And so if you think of it this way, you have God who is known and marked by his grace. And we we had a whole lesson where we were looking at the grace of God. But that grace itself has glory that would emanate from it. And the glory that emanates from the grace is worthy of our praise. So how much does that even speak to the possessor of that grace, which is God? How great is God if even one of his characteristics and attributes, that attribute itself has glory, and that glory of the grace of God is even worthy to be praised. You can look at the praise, and there's there, the way that it's used elsewhere in Scripture, it's not even just something that's given to God, but um, in, in Romans chapter 2, it talks about how we are to actually work for the approval not from men, but from God. And that's that same word here that was talking about the praise, that we want to have our approval or that commendation from God, not from men. Um, and we also want to be able to do good. First Peter talks about uh, the fact that we want to do good so that our governors will actually praise us rather than, you know, condemn us and throw us in jail. We want to work for the, the approval of those that, um, that are authorities over us. And so um, when, you, when you think of the praise that the glory of God is worthy of, it's not even a worship because God is the object of our worship, but it's understanding that the glory of God is worthy of our approval our praise, our exaltation as that which is something that is good. The praise that, that we have, one second, yeah. Um, so the praise that we have, the object is even God's glory. And if you look in verses 11 and 12, it says, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. 
and the reason that we have obtained that inheritance, the reason that God has given us blessings in Christ, which is what verses 3 through 14 is all talking about, all of these blessings are are our inheritance. The reason was so that we might be to the praise of his glory. By God blessing you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the result of that is his glory is praised. And we, the same thing happens in verse 13 and 14. It's reiterating the same truth. Acquiring our inheritance at the end of this age, so after we pass, after we are no longer here and we actually have possession of the inheritance, that is to the praise of the glory of God. So according to Ephesians 1, we are saved in Christ, we are blessed in, in Christ, and in Christ we will ultimately receive this inheritance that we have been, been told is ours And it is all so that God's glory may be praised. So this is a little bit different than what we often would even think about when we think of the praise that we would have. Rather than just God being the object of our praise, what we want to what we want to be conscious about is recognizing that even the glory of God and even the glory of the grace of God is something that is worthy of our approval and commendation. It's worthy of our praise. And so when we look at soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory, all that we are saying is that which is good and worthy of being praised by us. That is what we want to be working for. And that goes back to Bach. When he would write his composition pieces and make his music, he was doing it all for God's glory, which in itself is even worthy of praise. There's... Uh, one theologian who gave a definition of glory. And this, this helps us understand if we're to glory or if we are to praise God's glory, what is it that we're going to be praising? And it says, the glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself. So the glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of who he is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself. And he reveals himself as creator, sustainer, judge, redeemer, that he is perfect in justice and mercy and loving kindness and truth. This is who God is. He is these things. And he reveals himself as these things, resulting in a majestic goodness 
because of our recognition of those things. So it's the weight of the majestic goodness of who he is and the name or the reputation that comes as a result of it. So with this understanding of what the glory of God is, it's with this understanding that even God's glory, his name, his reputation because of who he is, even that is worthy of praise. God's grace has glory worthy to be praised. And as, as we, we uh, just talked about, the fact that God's grace has glory, which is worthy of praise, all that does is increase the value and the greatness and therefore the glory of the God who possesses that grace. There's one person who says, speaking of how glory is used in Scripture, he says, glory is broadly used to capture the supremacy of God in everything. God is supreme in all, and glory, God's glory, is used just to understand or encapsulate his supremacy in all in a word. God's glory is his supremacy in all things. God is completely supreme in salvation, in life. And so if we understand that, of course, we're going to look back to Ephesians 1 and say, of course his glory is worthy of our praise in our salvation and in our inheritance. Salvation is God's greatest expression of his supremacy. It comes from him and by him and through him. That we, and this is what we talked about when we were looking at sola gratia, grace alone. That grace from the beginning to the end is God. It has nothing to do with us. All that we do is we come to him dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive. And it was for his own glory. And if you remember, so that his grace Our salvation is a monument to God's grace. Our salvation is all about God and Christ. And therefore, of course he is supreme in our salvation. And therefore, of course, there will be great glory in our salvation. And that would be why God and or uh, in our salvation, God alone receives glory. So, we have actually looked at, up till now, this one sentence that, that summarizes the entirety of the five solas of biblical Christianity. So let me read this again. So it says, As revealed in Scripture alone, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so when you look at the five solas, you could almost imagine a temple and think of, like, of an old Roman-style temple where you have the foundation and you have Scripture alone is the foundation. 
And then on top of Scripture alone, you've got these four pillars that, um, that are standing vertical, or, or three pillars. So you've got um, the foundation of grace alone, but then faith alone. Let me back up. I apologize. The foundation of Scripture alone, but then you have grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, that these are the pillars that make the temple what it is. But on the very top, if you were to have the roof of the temple that is pointing up to heaven, this is all for the glory of God alone. That this temple, this picture, would almost be the picture of the five solas. It's built upon the foundation of what Scripture lays out, but God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but all of salvation is to the glory of God alone. The roof pointing to heaven, pointing to God, this is to the glory of God alone. And this is a picture of how all of the other, the solas in Scripture are all summed up within to God alone be glory. Apart from that, you have a temple with wet pillars in the rain. But the purpose of salvation is not to bring us to salvation. What makes it full and complete is the fact that it is all to God's glory alone. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, they all depend on soli deo, deo gloria. And there's, there's one book that um, I leaned heavily on with this um, that uh, um, written by David Van Drunnen. But a quote that he had in here, and this really helps us understand um, the way that... Um, the solas work together and culminate in a soli deo gloria. It says, the fact that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, without any meritorious contributions on our part, it ensures that all glory is God's and not our own. Likewise, the fact that Scripture alone is our final authority, without any type of ecclesiastical tradition or church tradition or magisterium or pope supplementing it or overruling it, it protects the glory of God against every human conceit. So, how we so like, and this is continuing what Van Dronen says, how we so like to think that there's something for us to add to the satisfaction and the obedience of Christ or to the inspired word of the prophets or the apostles or even that God is wonderfully honored by our contributions. But the reformers perceived that the perfect word and the work of Christ, precisely because they are perfect, need nothing to supplement them. Anything that tries to supplement them, in fact, challenges their perfection and thus dishonors God's word and work in Christ. And God and scripture tell us that God will share his glory with no other. That's in Isaiah 42. So by holding to soli deo gloria as the lifeblood, you could say, of the solas, what we do is we remind ourselves that what the biblical reformers recaptured, it's not about you, it's not about me, 
It's only about God. And how easy it is for our focuses to be self-focused. What can I do or how can I earn a standing before God? How easy it is where we think that we can work to make ourselves look right or look good before God. Or maybe I can explain or present in a better way the truths that are revealed in Scripture. People say, what must I do to be saved? And the other four solas, what they do is answer those questions that people can ask and show you there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can bring. There is no creativity that you can um, use to present something that makes God more beautiful than what he is. It is all about the glory of God alone. It has nothing to do with what man can contribute, but its highest purpose is God's own glory. God glorifies himself through the abundant blessings that he bestows on us. God is glorified through the blessings. This is why we are saved. We are saved and blessed in him because God alone is worthy of the glory or has the glory and God's glory alone is worthy of the praise, not you and I. So if you also look at point two though, after God's glory is even worthy of praise. We see that God's glory, it identifies him. And there's actually a few verses that I want us to look at, and this is a neat way to think about this, is God's glory, it's who God is. God's glory, it is the character of God. And so the, I, I've got a few different verses that are, that are listed here. I'm going to go through and read these to you. You can put these notes out to the side. But this shows God is marked by glory. In Acts 7, and this is right where Stephen is about to be, um, be killed. And his response that he says as, as he is about to die he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Who is God? He is the God of glory. Of all that Stephen could have used to refer to God as he's talking to the, the Jewish people who ultimately are going to stone him, what he chooses to speak to God about is the God of glory. The God who is characterized by glory is the God who appeared to Abraham. And not only is he the God of glory, but you also find actually in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, it's not just God who is the God of glory, but his son as well. Where he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Christ is the Lord of glory in the same way that the Father is the God of glory. This is who they are. In Ephesians 1, verses 16 and 17, you know, 
he, and we had read this, this um, but uh, he says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the, in the knowledge of him. The Heavenly Father, who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Father of glory. But you see this also elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And this is Samuel as he talks to Saul, as Saul is being rejected by God. So Samuel is telling Saul that, that he is being rejected. In verse 27, it says, And as Samuel turned away to go, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that he should have regret. So the way Samuel refers to God is God is the glory of Israel. That of Israel, which is worthy of commendation, that of Israel which is weighty and majestically good, that of Israel that is of great name and reputation, that is God. God is that which is the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel is not anything other than their God. He is the glory of his people. And we can keep looking in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 28. In verse 58, it says, If you're not careful to do all of this law that are written in the books, that you may fear his glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God. Yahweh, his name is worthy of fear, and his name is glorious and awesome. Even God's name, his reputation, is glorious. If you look at um, another Old Testament passage in Psalm 24, we're going to actually sing a song that is speaking of the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh. In Psalm 24, and this is, this is asking a question uh, that, that's repeated through here, and at the end he answers his question. So starting verse 7, he says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. He's the Yahweh of hosts. The hosts being referring to both the heavenly beings, and Psalm 86 actually speaks to this, that the angels, they are the heavenly hosts, but it's also used to refer to the, the stars and the constellations, the galaxies that, um, up in the universe. In Isaiah 40 is an example of this, that when God is the Yahweh of hosts, he is God over the angelic beings, he is God over the universe, 
And this is the king of glory. The king who is weighty and majestically good. The king who has a great name and a great reputation. So what do all of these things do? They show and reiterate the fact that God's glory identifies himself. The God of glory, the Father of glory, the King of glory, the Lord of glory. This is who he is. And because the glory is identi- or because glory identifies God, what does God do? But he reveals who he is to us. And God's glory is revealed to us. And this goes to point three. And there's actually uh, two, two points I didn't hear I want to look at. But we're going to see, first of all, that God's glory is manifested to us through creation. And if you look, look in Isaiah chapter 6, um, and you can go ahead and turn there. So Isaiah chapter 6, so th- this is the scene where Isaiah is confronted with being in the, in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven. And in verse 3, he looks at these angels who are crying out and ministering and serving to God in praise. And speaking of these, pra- of these angels, it says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is is filled with his glory. And look at the response that happens here. What is the response of Isaiah? In verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. The King, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You cannot escape the glory of God. And this is why when we think of Psalm 19 in verse 1, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above, they proclaim his handiwork. And day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Whether it's in the day and we look at the majesty of the skies and the sun, or at night and we see the majesty of the stars, the moon, they both pour out speech And their speech is declaring the glory of God. So we see that God's glory is manifested through creation. But also, and as we've we've spoken in another lesson as well, God's glory is manifest through his son. Speaking of Jesus, back in, uh, in the New Testament, in John chapter 12, starting verse 41, we, we read, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. So, referring back to Isaiah and who he spoke of, or wrote of, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. And the glory that Isaiah saw was Christ's glory, 
So as he is there in the presence of Yahweh of hosts, the king, and the throne room and the earth is filled with his glory, the glory that he saw was Christ's. So we can look in other passages. One, one example of Isaiah is uh, Isaiah chapter 4, where it says, In that day the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. It's that this is the branch of when Messiah is going to come. The branch of Yahweh, Christ, the branch of, of Yahweh, he will be beautiful and glorious. Christ is God's revelation to us of God's glory. Come to earth visible and, and, and tangible. And, and, and this is what we, um, when we were looking at in Christ alone, I, I know we spent a good amount of time talking about that as well. So if you want to, want to look at, um, and you can jot down these right here. These actually aren't in your notes, but a few other passages that speak to the glory that Christ had in 1 Corinthians 2.8, um, the Jews crucified the Lord of glory. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, where the gospel is the good news about the glory that Christ has. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And um, 1 John 1.14 says, And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son. And, and there's other passages that we can look to as well. So understanding this, we have a better understanding of who Christ is. Christ is, as the radiance of the glory of God, he is God's glory revealed to us. And he is the most visible expression of God's glory. He is the ultimate resting, and as we mentioned last week, the Shekinah glory of God. He is the ultimate expression of that. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In Titus chapter 2, we read, it says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's return is the appearing of the glory of God. And I would like us to actually flip to the end, to Revelation 21. And this is going to be probably one of my favorite verses that, that we're looking at of um, talking about Christ being glorious. If you go to Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23, we're going to actually see this imagery that just highlights or magnifies the glory of Christ. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
there is no need for sun or moon because the glory of God gives the light. And what is the source of that light? What is the source of God's glory? What is the lamp? The lamp is the Lamb of God. The lamp is Christ. The lamp is the one who shines God's glory so his people can see. So God's glory, it is who he is. It identifies himself. And uh, God's glory is also Christ's glory. That is who identifies Christ. That's who Christ is. He is the visible representation of God's glory. So, one of the things that I want to ask this question, because this is where we can get into an application, is how on earth did Christ glorify God? And in John 17, and go ahead and turn here if, if you would. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. In, in John 17, and this is in, in his high priestly prayer, in verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. And glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the, the world existed. So when he says, I glorified you on earth, how did he do it? Well, let's actually back up. And I want to get a running start through verse 1. And we're going to read through 1 through 5. So it says, when Jesus had spoken he, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So how did Christ glorify Father while he was on, the Father while he was on earth? It says, the Son may glorify you, verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And then in verse 4, it says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Son glorified the Father by completing the work that the Father had given him. For him, for Christ, it was the work of giving eternal life to all that the Father gave. So God is glorified when the Son faithfully serves and completes the task that he has been given. Christ glorified God by being faithful to accomplish that which God had given him to do, which was namely our salvation. And so we can even pause and look for you and I. There's application for us in this as well. And this is what uh, mirrors even what Bach understood. You and I can glorify the Father by faithfully serving and accomplishing that which he has given us to do. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 
verse 31, it says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Are you a parent, a father, a mother at home? Do your parenting for the glory of God. Be faithful to accomplish what God has given you to do. Are you a teacher? Teach for the glory of God. Are you an insurance agent? Are you a salesman? Do you sell flooring? Do you sell copy machines? What is it that you do? Are you a carpenter? In all that you do, solely Deo Gloria. In all that we do, we do all for the glory of God. And this is where soli Deo Gloria, it deviates and is different from the other four solas that we've looked at up till, up till now. When we looked at Scripture alone and grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, these are great doctrinal truths to believe. These are truths that Scripture speaks to that we believe and that impacts our life. But soli Deo Gloria, this is not just a doctrine to believe. Soli Deo Gloria is how you live. When Bach writes his music pieces and he writes at the end, soli Deo Gloria, this is the heartbeat of what to God alone be glory means. In what I do today, in what I do down the hallways, in the service and after the service, when you're having coffee with a brother or a sister, or you're helping somebody at their house, in all that I do, may it be for the glory of God. This is where we can stop and ask ourselves, what is my focus in life? As a parent, what is my goal? As a student, as an empty nester, what is my goal? Is my goal to be for the glory of God? And this is huge for us to understand because it's not something that I can believe and say, good, now Father be glorified in what I know and believe. But it is something that really is manifested in the way that it plays through your life and how you live. God's glory alone is worthy for praise. God's glory is what identifies himself. God's glory was revealed to us, both of who he is through creation, but also through his, sir, through his son. But God's glory, it's something that we don't just believe, but it's then something that we imply into our life and begin to do. But interestingly with this, even though it's dependent on us to live this way, God's glory is independent of us. If you st stay in John 17, in verse 1, where it says, the glory of your son, glorify your son, that the Son may now glorify you. We have the Father and the Son who glorify each other. But in verse 5, where he says, Glorify me, Father, glorify the Son, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Both the Father and the Son had glory and glorified each other before 
creation happened. God is not glorified solely because his creation, the angelic hosts, and us give him glory. God has glory. The Son has glory because that is who they are. Their glory is not dependent upon our recognition of the glory. If we don't see the glory of God, He is still glorious. If we don't recognize and don't praise His glory, He is still glorious. The Father and the Son both had glory and they both glorified each other before creation. And the Father and the Son, they will continue to glorify each other after, create, after this creation is, is done. God's glory is independent from us, but it's not unrelated to us. When we look at particularly this passage of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we realize that God's glory shapes the way we live. Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. One, com one commentator here said, by holding forth soli deo gloria as the lifeblood of the solas, we, we remind ourselves that biblical religion recaptured by the Reformation is not ultimately about ourselves, but about God. What we want to do as those who are faithful followers of God is we live our life solely for the glory of God. Let the glory of God be the motivating factor that directs you on how you live your life, both in church, in family, and work, because soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory, is the way we are able to act out and live out the truths of the five solas in our daily life. The end result is that God alone receives glory. And he receives glory because of who he is. He receives glory because it, it is what he has revealed to us. He receives glory that is independent of us. But we remember that his glory itself is worthy of praised. Praise, And this is why our lives should be marked by S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we pray that by your grace and by your strength, we would be able to be instruments that live to your glory, to your glory alone. We pray that as we continue to be with and minister to those in our body here this, these next hours, but then as we go out from the church and live our lives this next week, Father, may it be all lived for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.